I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about energy prices and what is happening in Europe with the Ukraine-Russia conflict, we have with us Dr. Joseph Mikat. He is the director of our Energy Security and Climate Change Program. Joseph, this is your first time on Truth of the Matter. I'm so excited to have you, but the circumstances are pretty scary. We've got gas prices, you know, averaging $6 a gallon in California and soon to spread throughout the rest of the United States. What's happening here and why? We're coming up on the summer driving season. Uh, first of all, Andrew, it's a pleasure to join you. I hope that we can have a good conversation amidst a, a real challenging time. You know, $6 in California is, is somewhat of a unique situation, but the prices that American consumers are facing at the pump are really significantly higher than we've seen in, re- in recent memory. $4.50 a gallon is a, is a rough estimate of the national average at the moment. And there's a couple things behind this. Clearly, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has disturbed oil markets in ways that we can talk about a lot. But it's important to remember the context of, of the past year. Coming out of COVID, oil prices had already been rising as the market was working to meet resumed demand. We were also kind of going through a, a cycle where in, you know, prices had crashed a few years ago, investment was coming back online, and the natural market dynamics were at work. Then you have this conflict, and that has caused both supply interruptions, which I'm happy to discuss further, but also a real sense of uncertainty in the market, which has caused prices to rise as uh, members of the industry and traders are trying to figure out what the future might hold for Russia, which is one of the largest oil exporters on the planet. There is additionally some stuff that is more technical, but involves the middle of the supply chain. Some of this is, is still the sort of the return from COVID dynamics where unprofitable refineries around the world have closed. And in particular, diesel prices have gotten really bad. So the refinery infrastructure is shifting to accommodate the demand for diesel, and that's impacting gas prices as well. So we have like supply challenges, we have refining challenges, and all of those things are stacking up in a ways that uh, are challenging consumers and, and raising prices above recent memory. So I guess the question that every American has right now is, is this going to subside anytime soon? Are we going to have a correction and pay more reasonable prices for gas? I mean, the other day I filled up my car and it was, you know, $90 or something like that. It was insane. And, you know, I guess all of us want to know, is there any relief in sight? I'm not sure we know. There are factors which could push us in either direction from, you know, oils trading now at $110, $112 a barrel. There is downside risk, right? Like uh, what's going on in China with COVID shutdowns is is something that we don't quite know how long those are going to last, the depth that the Chinese government will impose. We don't know how long those will last. We don't know how severe the Chinese government will be in its imposition of, of continued lockdowns. That has a, a major consumption signal. Thus far, it's it's led to Chinese inventories of oil and gas rising, but eventually it could affect global trade and reduce demand for in that country. You've also got 
you know, the sense that rising oil prices eventually will start affecting the demand picture as the costs of energy impose economic costs, as people forego the longer vacation. Because we're coming out of COVID, because a lot of demand has been pent up, we're not really sure how the market's going to respond to these things. But there could be, especially if this, this period of high prices is really prolonged, some significant economic costs, which would drive demand down and the, and, the, and the price would resume. That's not a gentle or happy process. On the other side, we're going to see continued moves to try to isolate Russian oil and gas exports as the conflict in Ukraine continues. And that could continue to drive price increases over time. A future picture has a lot of variance in it. Well, we're not sure which way it could fall. So I guess we should really be thinking about our budgets for this summer, you know, if we're going to drive somewhere or if we're going to fly somewhere, are our airline tickets going to rise as well? Yeah, you're going to see these price increases all over the place. You know, they're not, this is not the only thing that's driving inflation at the moment, but it's, a, it's an important factor across a lot of parts of the economy and in ways that sometimes is like a little bit unseen. I mentioned, you know, diesel prices are increasing or are at historical highs. That affects the transportation industry. It affects the prices of consumer goods in ways that we don't necessarily see, but are a part of an overall picture of rising prices. Gas prices have a way of really impacting the American psyche. You know, we look at that price at the pump and in a way that, you know, maybe food prices also in the same way, but it, it can't be good for the American state of mind to be looking at gas prices in the $5, $6 range. You know, what is the administration doing and what can they do to change their strategy in order to deal with these energy prices? So you're completely right that the U.S. is accustomed to relatively low gas prices. And this is something actually that we've enjoyed for the last decade or so, right? You know, if you talk to our friends in Europe, they routinely pay much more for for petrol or for gasoline or for diesel than we commonly do. A lot of that's tax policy. So, you know, sometimes when we talk to our international friends, they see our caterwauling and, and roll their eyes a bit. But but this is a, a major challenge for the administration and, and, and politicians take rising gas prices really uneasily. The trouble is, especially for oil, this is a global marketplace. And so the solutions that are immediately available are somewhat modest. I think the Biden administration has made good moves. They announced a very large release from our strategic petroleum reserve, which is a store of, of oil that our government keeps for national security purposes. And that was an important backstop for our oil consumption when we were a really big importer. Now that the U.S. is a big producer of oil because of the Shell Revolution, it, the national security need to maintain that uh, high stocks in that reserve is maybe perhaps somewhat less. And so you can start, politicians start to think about it in ways that like can kind of soften the blow of market dynamics. So the administration really announced a release of up to a million barrels per day. For your listeners, uh, the global consumption is, uh, let's say, roughly 100 million barrels per day. The U.S. is producing 10 or 11. You know, that's a significant release in, in a global marketplace that's always trying to achieve balance. And they can do that releasing up to about 180 uh, million barrels in total. So over the summer, this is really meant to smooth out the tightness in the, in the oil market. Because we expect over that same time period, rising production from the US and other places in response to these prices, right? Oil men like to make money. 
And when prices are this high, they're going to go out and find new sources of oil to bring to market. But in the meantime, this can provide some bridge. That had a real calming price effect on markets when it was announced. But the retail price doesn't solve every problem that we've talked about, doesn't solve the refining challenges, and it doesn't fully replace what could come offline from Russia and other sources. What do we need to do to adjust to this new reality with Russia in your mind? I think that's a really, that's a deep question, Andrew. You know, we, we have an ongoing conflict, one that has challenged the, the stability of Europe. And I think there is a strong justification for us finding ways to limit Russian export, to sanction it to the best of our ability in an attempt to create economic pressure on Russia and, and its leadership to, to stop the aggression. We need to, however, make sure that that's something that's politically feasible. And that means we need to make sure that the price impacts and the lifestyle impacts of that sanctioning activity, roughly speaking, is saleable both to the American public as well as to our international partners, right? So even if you can, you know, the United States, for instance, announced a ban on the import of Russian oil products. We were a relatively modest importer of Russian products. It's a global marketplace. So, you know, that didn't cause probably a lot of economic harm in Russia. Those things, that, that stuff can, can find other places and we can find other sources to replace that, the kind of oil that we were importing. But if you talk about like, you know, for instance, the European Union is right now debating a ban on Russian oil imports, which would be imposed over a six to 12 month period. That would be a significant shock to the, to the Russian export system. The problem is that if this drives global prices upward even further, and Russia's looking for outlets in other countries, China, India, Southeast Asia, where they can then sell at a discount, you can somewhat work against yourself. Because even if they're selling at a discount because the global oil price is so high, net revenue might not go down. And, and that has thus far been the case, even though Russia is exporting marginally less oil now than it did before the conflict because of multinationals pulling out and some other sanctioning activity. The rising global oil price has allowed their, their sort of net revenues to continue to go up as they're selling in other markets. So what we need to do is develop a strategy, can't work overnight, to add supply to the market from non-Russian sources, probably reduce demand to, to release some of the pressure on the, on the market. We can talk about ways that we might do that. And then we need to have a pretty aggressive strategy for making sure that we can lock in Russian production if what politicians want to continue to do is create economic pressure on Russia. Now, our European friends are dealing with their own kind of hell in Europe with energy prices. Anybody who's been to Europe recently has you know, probably experienced some of the protests surrounding gas prices in Spain, for instance. What are the Europeans to do about all this. I know they're trying to find a way to sanction Russia, but also a way to come through this in an economically viable way themselves. When we're watching what's going on in Europe, I think there's like multiple timescales that you need to consider. What do they do immediately? And what do they do over the next five to 10 years? I think even if this conflict were to end in the near future, the sense in Europe that Russia has crossed a red line and that the integration of the European and Russian economies through energy trade is just dead. 
Europe's going to move on uh, e- either way. So immediately they need to make sure they have enough energy to make it through next winter. And in particularly, that's a question of building up their gas stores, natural gas stores, so that there's enough available for power generation, for heating buildings, and for maintaining industrial production. A lot of that still has to be purchased from Russia because you can't just reorganize that economy overnight. Gas comes through pipelines. In the medium term, Europe is aiming to move relatively quickly to buy a lot more gas off of the global market, which means building the necessary infrastructure to import more liquefied natural gas. We're starting to see uh, construction bids go up for additional terminals in Europe. There's been an agreement between the U.S. and the EU at the presidential and commission level to facilitate more LNG trade between our two countries. And over the next few years, there's going to be a significant move away from, from Russian gas. On the oil side, because of the global market dynamics, that could reshuffle more quickly. The EU is currently looking at moving off of Russian oil imports within the next year when you take both crude oil and petroleum products. That involves some infrastructure retooling as well. And it's a a contentious issue in Europe. Discussions going on at the moment. But if they want to move rapidly off of Russian energy, that is probably the the fastest way to do it. The gas tie-up is going to take longer to unpack. We've seen a significant change in Europe's energy strategy in the wake of this conflict. I think we'll continue to see that change develop. They'll turn ambitions into plans for getting off Russian energy and having a more diverse energy supply. Unmentioned so far is I think that's also going to involve a significantly a significant acceleration of the energy transition in Europe toward more renewable sources under the sense that Europe has discovered that being an energy importer can put you in a very sticky situation, and they'd, they'd like to generate a lot more stuff within their borders. So both in Europe and in the United States, there's clearly a risk of gas and energy prices really being politicized, even though the American people and the European countries are, are overwhelmingly in support of Ukraine. When you're looking at these kinds of prices and this impact on the economy, you can't help but wonder how soon before this truly blows up into political firestorms all over the place. Are you concerned about that? Yeah, I, I am concerned about the the rising gas prices and harmful energy price increases for two reasons. The first is, I think it's kind of, it, it makes politicians nervous and then they can make missteps. There isn't a lot that the president of the United States can do to control gas prices. But there's a lot that the president can do to show that he's working on this issue or that he's working with Congress and the industry to help out American consumers. There's more that the president could be doing in this regard. Even if it doesn't you know, drop gas prices a dollar a gallon, I think it shows effort and an appreciation that this is actually a, a painful situation that people are living through as they're going to fill the tank. We keep hearing about the Keystone pipeline, and it, it, it's almost like a political code or totem pole right now, right? I'll admit the the sort of the past few months have been such a shock in energy systems that the political conversation has not caught up yet. You're familiar with these dynamics. An emergency happens, and and folks kind of fall back on the old talking points. So the conversation in Washington is regressed to, on one side, 
This shows the perils of the war on American energy. This shows the risks of the misguided efforts of climate advocates against infrastructure. And the, you know, these price increases get tied to the president's climate ambition, if not directly, then sort of by inference. And then on the other side, you've got this shows that fossil fuel energy systems are inherently insecure and we can't be hostage to petro dictators and we need to move quicker into energy transition. And what I've been trying to say is that we can have a grounded and practical conversation about both of these topics, because in reality, at this moment, the energy security agenda and the climate agenda can be linked in really useful and interesting ways. But we need members of both sides of the aisle, as well as our friends from the industry and from civil society, to actually be realistic about, one, whether the old talking points really apply to the current situation. In a lot of cases, they don't. And two, what we'll be able to do over the next six months, the next three years, and the next decade to materially improve the situation, not only for our allies, but for American consumers. I mean, everyone's coming in hot on this issue. So it's hard to imagine how we're going to have a reasonable measured discussion about energy policy and climate in America, given, you know, the circumstances. It has to happen. I, I'm, I'm sorry to say it's going to be a difficult one to have. I don't know. I can't tell you when it's going to happen. But my firm belief is that if America sits on its hands at this moment, we are going to miss an opportunity to materially improve the energy security of our allies. We're going to miss the moment for creating real pressure against Russia as it carries on this war. And we're going to miss a moment for you know the energy transition to work practically as we try to improve our energy security. All those things can happen. We just need to have a somewhat calm, though urgent discussion about what our national priorities need to be. Joseph, this brings me to a roadmap that you and our colleagues, Nico Safos and Ben Cahill have laid out. You did a paper in late April called Seven Ways for the U.S. and Europe to Advance Energy Security and Advance Climate Goals, Seven Ideas to Enhance Energy Security and Advance Climate Goals. What are those ideas and why now? So we got our heads together to think, all right, if the old talking points don't work, what does work? What are America's unique strengths and resources at this moment? What are the Europeans planning to do? You know, how do we help them meet their goals? How do we deal with the secondary effects of what Europe's planning to do? And, and how do we do this in a way that's relatively actionable, right? And we broke our recommendations up into sort of three buckets with the overall goal being, how do we improve energy security for our allies and ourselves while not worsening climate outcomes? What that means is without increasing greenhouse gas emissions on a total basis, right? Because some of the answer here is increasing oil and gas production from the United States. If Russian production is going to get shut in, even on a modest schedule, we need to be able to meet demand that will exist in the next few years with supply. Otherwise, you get these very high prices and political and consumer backlash. So there are reasons why we would like the U.S. to be a big part of meeting that increased supply. Because we generate a lot of shale oil in the United States, 
we have what's called a fast cycle resource. You drill a well, the oil comes out, but you're not making a big infrastructure commitment like you would if you're building an oil platform in an offshore environment. And so it, we can sort of meet demand without committing to a bunch of infrastructure that's going to be a challenge as we look at the energy transition. This is also just good for the American economy. On the natural gas front, the U.S. is now the, most, the biggest exporter of LNG to Europe. I think that the U.S. and the EU have agreed that we will continue to grow that export market out of the U.S., but we need to do that in a way that is consistent with Europe's climate goals and with United States energy security. The third bucket to understand is adding supply is really good and is going to be necessary, but supply meets demand. And so as countries over the next decade, we're targeting fairly significant greenhouse gas emissions reductions. Can we target our activities so that we can enable demand reduction, for instance, through like the electrification of passenger vehicle fleets or the installation of more efficient appliances so that we're using less fossil fuel energy or we need less fossil fuel energy, particularly in Europe, but also probably in the United States. Those two goals can work together such that we end up with a system that is more secure, where the U.S. is a better guarantor of energy security internationally, and where we're not increasing net greenhouse gas emissions. We have to be creative, but I think we can actually really do it. And we put together a set of recommendations in an attempt to start that conversation in Washington. Okay, Joseph, so you've given us these three overarching buckets, but there's seven recommendations. What are the seven recommendations that you're putting out there for policymakers? So let's start with oil. The goal here is to increase production in the United States in the sort of the cleanest ways possible. In the U.S., we don't have a lot of political control over the oil market, but we can really look at why is the U.S. production not growing fast enough, even in a high price environment. That's largely because the shale industry for the past 10 years lost a lot of money because it grew rapidly was losing money under that growth. And now bankers want these companies to be more disciplined. They want their money back rather than explosive growth that could potentially collapse the market. So number one, we were recommended that the administration use the bully pulpit to say, this is a national security imperative. And they bring the shale companies, the producers, the financiers to the White House for regular series of public meetings talking about how we're going to increase production in the United States more rapidly than companies are presently planning to do it. You know, without these meetings, the companies will eventually meet demand with new production, but we need to have it faster. Perhaps we want, to, we want them to work to produce even more. And using the bully pulpit does a few things. First, it clarifies mixed messages. The administration's been you know, on, on the one hand, we need more production. On the other hand, accusing uh, oil companies and others in the industry of price gouging. And here we actually just need more alignment, I think. Two, helps producers make the case with their investors, right? It actually means something when you go to your banker and you say the president of the United States says we need to increase more production. And I need you to help me do that. And three, for a lot of the sort of like, you know, like everything else in the, in the economy is, is we're coming out of COVID. There are just like logistical and supply chain challenges that the industry in the U.S. has. And those are the things that like federal agencies might be able to help with. Drawing them out and understanding them better is something that has to happen potentially in a public environment as we find ways to, to do this. Number two, 
because of this finance challenge and the fear that the downside risk in the market will, will cause companies to lose money again if they make a bunch of investments in new production, some sort of price stability mechanism would be helpful. The U.S. is selling out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for the next six months. So a second recommendation we made was commit to buying into the SPR if prices fall below a certain level. $70, I think, is, the, is what we threw out there, but that, that amount could change based on what your goals were. But the, the target there is to give the finance community a little bit more confidence that if they are investing in increased production so we can push Russian oil out of the global marketplace, if prices were to crash, they're not going to lose their shirts yet again on the, on the U.S. oil and gas industry. The administration has sort of inched this way already, committed to refilling a portion of the SPR sale later this fall, but they haven't talked about the price situation in which they'll do that. I think that they could get a lot out of providing that certainty. And then the last suggestion we have is we could think about using other government instruments. Some of the conversation in Washington has been around using the Defense Production Act. The model we, we asked folks to think a little bit more about was, could we have a targeting lending program for oil field services sector, so that as they're building a, a, a new workforce, they had a lot of retirement during the price crash during COVID. As you're building a new workforce, as you're building the, a, a new supply chain, we could inject money in, it would, it would likely come back, but, but federal support could really help in that regard. All those things are, are stuff that would help over the course of the next year or two, right? It's not, they're not gonna create immediate price reductions for, for the consumer. But as we think about this sort of long-term project of shutting down Russian export, each of those would be important for sending market signals that the U.S. is prepared to meet some of that demand. On natural gas, there's sort of a diplomatic effort, and then there's a economic effort here in the U.S. The first suggestion that we have we offered is, you know, so what Europe requires us, we know a little bit about the EU's strategy. To get off Russian pipeline gas, they have to buy a lot more LNG. There's only so much LNG that's sold in the global marketplace, and the amount that the EU is planning to buy is going to basically eat up or capture most of the global market. This creates instability and energy insecurity for a lot of our allies and friends around the world, creates geopolitical tension, and actually could be counterproductive on the climate front if a lot of places Countries that were planning to build LNG facilities or use that LNG end up having to burn coal instead, right? And this is like from countries that we have great economic ties with, like Japan, to countries like China, Pakistan, and, and, and others. So we recommended that the U.S. work with the major importers and the major exporters of LNG at the sort of like ministerial level to make sure that as Europe is, is making these big moves in the LNG marketplace, not too much gets damaged. I think that's purely a diplomatic effort, but it's something that could be really important, especially as we view this as a process that's going to happen over the next few years. We don't know what other monsters lurk around the corner at various points in the world, and we want to make sure that we're sort of ready to deal with those. The second recommendation is to, to figure out creative structures for the U.S. to supply more LNG to Europe in ways that don't sacrifice Europe's climate commitment. The most simple way to put this is, if you're gonna build a big LNG export terminal, you want customers for that thing. And so the way that those projects get financed is you demonstrate that you have enough long-term buyers that you can get, get money to, to build that project. 
Europe, because of its climate goals, doesn't necessarily want to be a consumer of, of U.S. LNG, definitely not at the volumes we're talking about uh, displacing of Russian gas 15 or 20 years from now. So we need to figure out some way of dealing with that challenge. This is not necessarily a U.S. policy issue, but it's something that diplomacy go a long way to push as well. We've suggested a couple different models. On the one hand, you could look at sort of a split contracting scenario. So we develop a strategy by which additional U.S. LNG capacity that is built so we can ship more to Europe over the next few years is designed and contracted in such a way that after eight or 10 years, when Europe doesn't need that gas anymore, it is contracted in a way such that it then is shipped to Asia to displace coal use. And you could you could work out a way that you were sort of financing that that later shift to Asia using early payments for the infrastructure. That's a way to actually increase energy security and meet long-term climate goals, even though you might produce or export a little more LNG out of the United States early on because of the coal displacement that you have at the end of the period. We could also think about ways that U.S. policy could allow LNG leaving the U.S. and being exported to Europe to be as clean as possible. There's tax credit programs that would allow for the carbon emissions associated with the running of a liquefaction plant to be captured. There's methane regulations that govern oil and gas production here in the U.S., but making sure that all the new facilities that we will build to meet European gas demand over the next 10 years are going to run as cleanly as possible from a climate perspective is another model for allowing us to ship a lot more LNG to Europe without sacrificing climate goals. And then lastly, you know, a lot of the U.S. conversation focuses on production here in Washington, because that's the stuff that helps us over the next couple of years. But Europe is also thinking about this moment of diversification as a time to accelerate their energy transition. It would be a mistake to replace one insecure supply chain for energy, mainly dependence on Russian pipeline gas, with a supply chain that depends heavily on Chinese manufactured products, solar cells, lithium ion batteries. There's been a very interesting and nascent discussion here in the US on part of it springing from the infrastructure bill, some of it with legislation that's in front of Congress now, to build up more, a more resilient supply chain for clean energy technology. And a lot of that could be manufacturing that happens here in the US. And I think we should think creatively about the policy mechanisms we have in place or could add through congressional action that have bipartisan support that would allow us to build manufacturing facilities for things like EVs, for solar cells, for manufacturing hydrogen with low greenhouse gas emissions that can be shipped to Europe, and really think carefully about using those tools so that at the end of the decade, you have a scenario where the U.S. is moving from being just a, a sort of hydrocarbon superpower to a low-carbon energy superpower and working closely with our partners to, to do so. Joseph, this has been a lot to digest and a great <laughs> conversation to have and something that we need to have on an ongoing basis, so I can't wait to have you back. Hopefully, gas prices will be a little less the next time we talk. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully there'll be a little bit less for the right reasons. You got it. Thanks a lot, man. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, 
The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 